I think for me, I'd like people to be able to see the ripple effect of everything that they do. Welcome to Nature Magic. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Claire Warden. Claire is an advocate for outdoor learning. Among many achievements, she is founder of Living Classrooms, the International Association of Nature Pedagogy and the Mind Stretchers Academy. She is director of the wonderful Uplone Nature Kindergarten in Scotland, where children spend 80% of their day outside. She received an international award of exceptional master leader for her work on the floor books approach. And she has written many other educational books, including Nature Kindergartens and Forest Schools. Claire has been extremely effective in bringing nature into education and children into nature. So welcome, Dr. Claire Warden. We're very, very lucky to have you on the Nature Magic podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be here. So hello from Scotland. Yes, all the way over in Scotland. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, I suppose um, in summary, I'm a bit of um, an educational entrepreneur, I suppose you could describe me like that. So coming very much from an education and care lens on all of the the aspects of the natural world. But my passion is this thing called nature pedagogy, which is a way of being with children, whether you're inside a building, outside in an outdoor area or beyond in wilder spaces on top of mountains or in forests. But wherever you are, my passion is about our working with and for the natural world. Yeah, and you have a fantastic nursery, the Ocklone Nature Nursery in Scotland. Uh, everybody should go onto the website to see a beautiful video of Claire of taking you around the nursery and all the special design elements you have for small children, rocks and things in the entrance and different. I love the way the entrance, they can choose between an arch, a bridge uh, or a little gate. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, when you when you put children in the driving seat of coming up with the ideas, whether it's ideas for landscape design or just playing outside the natural world, they are the inventors. They are the ones who have such a divergent way and a new way of looking at things. Um, so consulting those children and recording their voices is part of my educational practice. Um, but I think it's really important that wherever you're working with children, that you have this negotiation this consultation with children because I think their ideas and their theories are totally fascinating mm. and that really sort of blends in with the concept of the floor book which you I'm not sure if you designed it or you're promoting it can you explain what the floor books are for people Go on. yeah no I, I did um yeah I suppose I am the creator of it um about 30 years ago I was working with a group of children down in Swindon and one of the things that happened was that they were disconnected from education. Um, we were inside four walls. They're a very movement orientated group of children. So very busy, very full on. And I, to cope really, I said, right, we're going outside. And I grabbed a piece of paper and we went outside and I sat down and said, right, what is it about the trees or the, the, the grass that's fascinating to you? What do you want to explore? And that was it. That was the beginning of it. So 30 years on, it's now got a very defined way of working, if you like. You know, there are um, what you call inquiry based methods, which means that we we find something that we find fascinating, like change. Um, and we then experience all sorts of things along the way to really go down deep. So in terms of the natural world, 
we might be looking at change from ice to water. We might be looking at it from the leaf and how it gradually changes to die in the autumn. So the concepts that we explore linked to the natural world are just phenomenal. And children have an um, embedded knowledge, if you like, of all those things. So what a floor book does is to write down their ideas, takes pictures, um, you do all sorts of other methods with it. But the important part, I suppose, for those people listening in education is that at the back of the floor book, you're held accountable to the curriculum outcomes. So the, the experiences for children when you go out in the natural world aren't driven by the curriculum. So there's not a set thing you must do, but we are holding ourselves accountable. And that by doing it that way round gives children more agency, more freedom, more autonomy, I suppose, to, to follow what they love and are inspired by when they go outside. Mm, so really the children are just going out to have fun and they're getting the edu education by the by. Um, you have a free ebook that I've been getting. I'm not sure if it's free because of Corona, but no, anyway, no, it's, free. it's free. It's absolutely fabulous. There's a new, um, new one out this morning, The Broken Stick, and how <laughs> you can learn through The Broken Stick. And really, you can learn fractions, repair, all these different concepts. And, and kids love breaking sticks. <laughs> They do, they do. And, and so often as adults, you know, we look at that stick and we think it is just the stick and there is nothing just about it. And so those little, you know, the ebooks that you're talking about there, they, they give the little case studies. And one of the things that I suppose inspired me from childhood is people say, when was the moment? When was the moment when you finally decided that you were going to really embrace the natural world? And I can't give people a moment what I can say is that my life has been full of moments and those moments pass by so quickly and very rapidly really, those moments become connected. Um, they become more about memory. And so if you imagine that through your life, you've had all these little droplets of moments, whether it's you know standing with your feet in a puddle or looking up and gazing at a tree and people think, oh really, is that gonna be enough? But when those moments connect and coalesce, and then they become memories of childhood. Um, and we keep those conversations going with children. I really believe that actually by doing that, we're going to create stewards of the planet in the future. They're going to be the people who will be looking after this most fragile earth that we're all living on at the moment. I agree. I agree. So you grew up in Scotland um, in the countryside or? I actually grew up in Africa. I was in um, Africa. Oh. I know. My um, only until I was about four and a half. Um, so I didn't really grow up there. And then I came over to Shropshire um, and had my childhood in Shropshire, which was a beautiful place. But my mum was um, a real inspiration for me because she was post-war. She'd gone through the war and um, and had remained unmarried through this process. And I think one of the things that um, we found, sadly, after she passed away, is that she was mentioned in dispatches, that she was, she used to work near the Dockland area in um, Sunderland, actually. And so you find things out about your parents, um, you know, that you just never knew, did you? And, and so anyway, she decided that she wasn't going to stay in England. She was going to get on a boat and go out and work in Africa, which at the time must have been in the 40s, must have been just mind blowing. Um, and that's where she met my father and they stayed there for some time. She was an infant school teacher. And then they came back um, when I was about four and a half, five years old. There'd been some uprisings in the country and felt it was a bit vulnerable. So my very earliest memories are actually of being outside all the time um, in Africa. 
And then when I grew up in, um, in Shropshire, sadly, my father passed away when I was quite young. And that's, I suppose, what was, it was one of those triggers for me about seeing the power of the natural world as a place where you feel a spiritual connection to something else. And if I had to say, you know, what was the moment? It was those moments where I would, um, really dealing with grieving, I would walk up to the forest and sit with my back against this particular oak tree. I would, you know, climb up on the hill and look out over the environment and, and trying to put all of the idea of the cycles of life and death into perspective. Um, that was my place to go to. And you forget that these things have happened until you have these, I suppose, you might call it a rift in thinking, a shift, something happens. And for me, that happened probably about 10 years ago when I was working in the uh, Northern Desert in Western Australia with um, a wonderful group of an Aboriginal community. And I was talking to the elders there about life and everything else. And their whole First Nation perspective of the natural world is that it is an interconnected system. And I began to realize that actually some of my feeling as an adult was that I was almost um, a bit of a misfit in terms of some of the Western ways of thinking about nature, which were always, you know, well, nature's something over there, we'll go and study it, it's all very nice, but it sits away. Whereas First Nation thinking and probably our ancient thinkings were all about how the fact we're all part of a large ecosystem and you can't damage one part of it without affecting another's. Um, so for me, that was when it all came together and I sat there and thought, actually, now I realise that I am connected to the observable, the things you can see and the unobservable that nobody can really define, but it is an unobservable sense when you walk in a forest and you feel a calmness or you feel the essence almost of spring coming up at this, this time of year. You can feel it in your bones, even if you can't see that tulip or that daffodil opening, you have a sense, don't you? And then um, like that, I then began to really appreciate the idea of the fact that the natural world isn't just the living, but it's the non-living. So it's the stones, it's the wood, and, and all of these things in the natural world to me are um, on a journey, if you like. And people say, what do you want about, you know, how can a stone be on a journey? And I'm like, well, a stone is on a journey because it used to be part of a mountain. It used to be in a volcano. So it's come up, it's been eroded, it's been moved, transformed. For some reason, it's in your garden, but it's had a journey in its very essence of what it is and you're holding it. And its journey after you've held it in your hand will carry on. It will be further eroded. It will be transformed into sand. It will be washed out and down into the earth or along a river and appear in the ocean. And then it will become sedimentary rock. And so once you start to appreciate that we're all on a journey, whether it's a, a stick or a rock or a human being or a leaf, then you begin to really open up the wonderment and awe of this amazing planet that we're living on. Wow, that is so well said. And there's so many things I want to ask you about there. <laughs> but um, what really comes to mind now, we do a lot of school tours here and we're in the mm -hmm. Burren in County Galway. So there's mountains of limestone, karst landscape. And when mm. I bring the kids, it doesn't matter what age they are, they can be barely talking. And I explain to them that all the rock they see used to be the bones of tropical fish. Every <laughs> single piece of rock, because we this was a tropical sea 350 million years ago and all the yeah. bones created all this rock. 
they're instantly engaged. Absolutely. So it's fantastic. And what a wonderful yeah. experience um, to actually meet the First Nations people. And um, also, do you know why your mother was mentioned in dispatches? Uh, yes, um, she um, was actually a wireless operator. And um, it was actually during, she was in the southern part of England um, at Dunkirk and that area, so in the southern coast of England. And um, the, they were sending troops over um, for the battle and the bombing had started on in the southern part of England and she stayed at her post to make sure that the messages got through that the, all of the materials and resources and support system to help the soldiers come home and for us to go out um, were all um, supported, yeah. So Ex Extraordinary. And then just to leave that, nobody probably spoke about it again. Did. And she went and off and had a family and wor worked in a, a school and yep. nobody knew about it. Amazing. Nope. Absolutely. And I think it's that, um, you know, sometimes when, when you look at, you know, the some of the troubles that we're going through at the moment and and you there are people that are just um they have a calmness and a a phenomenal strength actually um and it's only in times of crisis sometimes as human beings we see that internal strength that we all have but we see it more so in other people you know who are um you know, going to walk down the garden, um, you know, and, and and raise money for the National Health Service, or it's somebody who has managed to save money and they're buying materials for people in other countries. So we have this incredible strength within us as human beings. But I think it's really interesting to look at how people have responded through the pandemic to the natural world. So for me, you know, I've been working in this field now trying to support people to go outside whether it's been through the sustainability agenda, whether it's been through emotional benefits, whether it's been through an intellectual provocation, however, we've been trying to get people out. And yet actually something as small as a virus and the decisions made about that virus, horrible though it is, have actually caused people to make a, a societal shift to go outside. Um, sadly, you know, places like your own nature sanctuary haven't had people in, but, but we've seen more people going out to the natural world, which in itself raises an issue for me because around here in Scotland, we've now got massive issues with people fly tipping. We've got people coming up from more urban areas, perhaps making a judgment there, but they're coming up, maybe not understanding the how fragile this natural world is that we're in. Um, and so, you know, they're leaving tents and they're leaving stoves and burning heather. And, and so, Part of me is very positive about the fact that people are opening up to the natural world, but part of me is also a little bit apprehensive that A, we'll go back to just being indoor dwellers again, and B, that will destroy this very thing that we're trying to support. But um, yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting process to see how people's relationship with the natural world has changed actually over the pandemic. Mm, absolutely. Uh, hopefully the start of it is people are going out making a mess and then learning comes and follows that. Uh, one that of the, yeah, that would be lovely that we, we support Leave No Trace here. So we do Leave No yeah. Trace school tours, actually. We've had 20,000 children being becoming Leave No Trace ambassadors. And we do it, we do the principles through engagement. So respect animals and wildlife, they actually get to um, feed a goat you know so everything is through engagement and they take photographs of themselves doing the actions 
But so we'll go back to one of the questions is if you have a favourite plant or animal. Mm. Well, having spoken about my mum, it's interesting because um, I, for me, um, a wren is the my favourite bird. And um, my mother um, also adored wrens. And uh, there's something about a wren. It's the busyness. It's the um, fragility, the tenacity, the... Um, I suppose the it's that humility, the shyness of a wren that I think also I find just um, inspirational, really, that they, they don't have to shout about what they do. I have a beautiful song, but they don't need to shout about it. You know, they're not glaringly bright, but they, you know, they find the most amazing places to nest. And so I always imagine that a wren is creative in terms of thinking actually everybody else has got a nest up here in the tree I'm going to put mine down here in this old kettle um you know so I think oh a bit a bit different a little bit you know challenging the stereotype of a bird all of those things but yeah wren would be my bird oh. for sure and they're so adorable as well and I suppose they do illustrate the inner strength of a little soul as mm -hmm. well um, do you have a, do you have a favorite plant well, my maiden name was Campion. And so um, for me, it was always, whenever you went for a walk, it was, you know, even with my own children, it was like, what's the name of that flat? Oh, it's Red Campion. Good, thank you. What's that? C Campion. And that's my initial, of course. So it was always the joke for us about the Campion flower. And um, when we were having a piece of furniture made here and um, a friend who makes them out of old burr elm pieces and things like that, so they're quite rough. And then so he fills some of those cavities with resin. And then I got a silver, like a, a stainless steel ingot made of a shape of a, of a campion flower. And that's what I put into the table because I just, you know, that's my, that's who I was. That's my family and still is my family, of course. Um, and then my son, he chose a pig because he's really into farming. So his um, icon was a pig. And then my husband is a canoeist. So he chose a paddle. My daughter was into horses, so she got a, um, a horseshoe. And then my youngest girl at that point, um, Emily, she had um, a little bear, a teddy bear, really, that she adored. So we actually drew that teddy bear and then had that made and put that into the table, too. So it's, you know, when you think about all those things, they're all connected in some way to the natural world, you know, and I think... I couldn't have um, been with somebody if he wasn't a canoeist or a rock climber or a walker, because, you know, I can't sit inside for that long. Um, but all of us as a family have now got that passion for sure. Great. So that table, is it your kitchen table or is it yours? No, it sits in the lounge. It sits in my sitting room. Yeah. But, um, and it's, it's lovely because whenever anybody comes in to the house, you know, people are very welcome to come in. They, they always talk about the story and so it goes back to that idea of the journey, doesn't it, really, that there's a story behind the furniture. You know, there was the tree, got a disease, got cut down, was made into a table. And then we've added our story. So now they're intertwined. So our story now has become about our family and what matters to us with the table and the wood. And, and so those stories go on. And I think um, hopefully they'll be remembered for yeah, millennia. Who knows? Mm. Yeah, stories stories are always a good learning tool as well. Uh, in our first lockdown, we were only allowed two kilometres. Now we're allowed five kilometres. We're totally locked down until after April. Uh, but the first one was two kilometres. So all the little kids were off school and they go for their walk around the village. 
And then yeah. some, some botanist put um, chalk names on all the weeds. That, well, they're not weeds, but, you know, plants around yeah. the village yeah. on the pavements. So the kids were running oh, around. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> so that was lovely. That's, that's it. That was a good thing that came out of lockdown as well. Um, you obviously feel very spiritually connected to nature. Is uh, You were talking about it before in your childhood. Have you had any recent experiences or something you'd like to share with us? I think... Um... I think for me, it's it's not any one moment, um, but it's, as I said to you the other day, I was walking down the field here and there's just a sense of an awakening. There's It's the whole earth, you know, that you could feel more heat in the sun. There was a sense almost that the, the ground was groaning with the effort of the plants beneath it to start to push up these very fragile shoots. Um, and I think when you tune in, when you begin to open your mind to the possibility that there is an unobservable essence in this world. And um, in part of my PhD, part of my research was trying to get to a place where we feel comfortable talking about spirituality. Um, I'm not particularly religious, but I am very spiritual. So for me, it's about being brave enough to talk about actually what are these unseen things that that affect us so deeply. And it can be just the fact that you walk into a forest or you see something and it almost causes you to stop and, and to just pay full attention to that moment. Um, you know, why is it that when I walk alongside a waterfall, if the river is very full, I get that sense of real calmness. And people say to me, you know, physicists and friends, and um, I actually had to delve into the world of quantum biology when I was doing my PhD. And quantum biology and, and the quantum world absolutely accepts the fact that there is this unseen connection going on across everything. And what's interesting, and I don't know, maybe it's just serendipity, but I don't know why at the moment we are talking a lot now about the unseen webs of life that exist in forests, for example, you know, that we're trees will share nutrients, um, that mycelium of mushrooms have done that. Um, so we're beginning to, I think, be ready to have conversations because so many people through this pandemic have gone out into the natural world to get some sense of emotional, spiritual support. Mm, very, very interesting. I'd love to have a look at that PhD. <laughs> um so are you do you have anything that you can suggest for people or small people to do to support nature and help with the biodiversity crisis and all that's going on at the moment I think the first thing is is to accept that you know a bit like the phrase that says you know the butterfly wing that is so fragile in one part of the world when it beats its wing will have an impact on the whole ecosystem around the world so no matter how small and fragile we think we are doing small things taking small moments every day um, and as many times a day as we can to do something positive is going to have an impact so that means it might be that rather than treading on a plant, you move it aside rather than picking a flower, you adore it where it is. Maybe it's a case of thinking about what the birds around you might find helpful at the moment and even brushing your brush and taking your hair that you don't want anymore and letting it go off on its own journey by putting it on a bird table. So birds can then use that to make their nests. 
these little moments in our day will definitely have an impact on the world around us. That's a lovely idea to put the hair for the birds because um, I, I see them taking hair from the alpacas and the goats <laughs> and everything in the spring. So that's really lovely. And when I was about 14, I think I came across a book, The One Straw Revolution by uh-huh. Masanobu Fukuoka, hard to remember. But anyway, the concept was um, he planted one straw and it was, was sort of an organic revolution in Japan and all about biodiversity. So that what that phrase, the one straw revolution has stuck with me. You don't have to do massive things. Little things can really help. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's um there's a whole movement around this, I think, that we need to look at. And, and one of those, again, from Japan, actually, is called Golden Blue. And so rather than the idea that we buy new things all the time and we can get caught up in the commercialization of this whole world that we're in. But one of the things about the Golden Blue is that they they if, say if you broke a mug rather than throwing that mug away, you you fix it using Golden Glue. So you then have a mug that has a story to tell because you have golden blue on it. And so we can change the way we look at things and say, actually, to help the planet, we don't need to have so much stuff in our life. We can just get really into that habit of fixing and mending. And when you do that, it's just really fulfilling, actually. You feel quite good that you've managed to fix a mug or something like that, especially when you can do it in a funky kind of way. Mm, rewarding absolutely absolutely yeah and um, I want to talk about all your books again at the end but have you any favorite nature book that you would like to recommend to people I I was thinking when um, you asked me about this and and I I was thinking back to my own childhood and, and there are lots and lots of books out there at the moment you know the stickman there's all those different ones but I thought what was the book for me that I loved reading? And it was called The Little Grey Men by B.B. An ancient book. And I remember sitting there, I must only have been about nine years old. And um, it was a penguin, I seem to remember. And um, black and white drawings only in it. And it was all about the idea that there were these characters, um, I suppose elfin characters that lived in the forest and there were four of them and they decided to go on a journey Um, They got themselves a boat and they packed up this boat using acorn cups and spider's web for the sails. And and so everything they did in this story was linked to things in the natural world, whether they were going down the rapids of the stream or whether they were making a house in the bottom of a tree. Um, And so for me, when I think about stories that inspired me, that was definitely one of them. I've just always adored reading that book. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to have a look for that one. <laughs> sounds really good. Um, so if you had a magic wand, what would you like to do for the planet? I think for me, I'd like people to be able to see the ripple effect of everything that they do. Because what happened when the pandemic hit was that the planes were stopped. The cars went into the garages. And all of a sudden, people had this unique opportunity to see mountains they hadn't seen because of pollution, that they were able to see wildlife coming back into cities. They were able to see clean water. I mean, we had dolphins in Venice. So across the world, we were given the unique privilege really through this pandemic to see what the world could be, would be like if we were just to take care. And so for me, 
every time, wouldn't it be wonderful if every time you pick something up and did something, there was a little sort of, you know, thing that springs up in your mind to say, do you really want to do that? Here's your choice. You could either throw that piece of paper on the floor um, and all these things will happen, or you could put that piece of paper in the bin. So I think that's the thing that the natural world needs us to do is just to understand how interrelated we are with it. And so therefore that everything that we do and the decisions that we make um, have an impact on this beautiful place around us. So what I'd like to do for the natural world is to look after it, is not to see that it's only about human beings being dominant and looking after the planet, but to understand that if I look after the planet, it in turn will look after me. Well, hopefully people will have your little voice. Claire will pop up in their head now. I go, am I going to do that? Claire says no. Claire says think about it. Claire yeah. says think about it. Claire says it's your choice. <laughs> yes. Let's <laughs> think about it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, going on to that, again, going back to my first comment about, you know, the First Nation thinking, many of the decisions they make are called seven generational. So the decisions we make in law and politics and all these other things can sometimes be very short-sighted. But if you think that every decision you're going to make is going to have an impact for seven generations of the people to follow you, then it makes you rethink more deeply about some of those decisions that you make. Gosh, yeah, the politicians really need to hear that phrase again and again. Get, you have to get in their ear as well. Yes. <laughs> So um, I really want you to tell everybody about all the wonderful things you do. You've got lots of courses. Um, you've got lots of books. There's, uh, could you tell us what a talking tub is, actually? Because there's books and courses about sure. using them. Sure. So it's a part of the what you call the floor book approach. So um, when you um, sit down to talk with children, you frame the conversation using a talking tub. So in it, say, for example, I wanted to talk about birds. I, in my talking tub, I might have an old nest that's been left. I might have images of unusual nests from around the world. I might have some feathers that we found. I might have photographs of the local birds. There may be some birds that come to my bird table. I might have a photograph of that. So they're provocations for conversation and they go into that talking tub. And that means that it's a bit like when you go to a wedding, I don't know how often you go to weddings, but when you go to a wedding and you don't know anyone at your table, it's sometimes quite hard to start that first conversation. So you usually say something like, oh, are you here with the bride or the groom? What's the center of your table? Oh, look at those lovely roses. You find something, a bottle of wine, whatever it is, to start that conversation. And that's what a talking tub does. It helps children to share with us as adults what they already know, because they know huge amounts. Um, but yeah, it allows us to engage in conversation. And then we can write down their ideas and their theories. Um, in a big thing called a floor book. And then we can gather all of those, the, the photographs of them being engaged, the, their um, drawings, their art, their model making, whatever it is that they're showing us and put that into this long journey, if you like, that, that's held in this giant floor book called a floor book. Mm. Oh, great, great. So you have the Mind Stretchers Academy. Uh, do you want to tell us about some of the courses that you're running? Sure. So um, the Mind Stretches Academy really is the, um, the hub of many different things. So the courses that we have are all around nature pedagogy, which are about how we learn with the natural world. 
So we go out into it. That's lovely, but it's into the natural world. And then we can learn about it. So we can learn all about the birds and the frogs and the pigs and everything else. And then really what happens is that you get to a point where you learn with it. And that means that you get that balance. You get that understanding that we're all in this together. And then when you've got that balance, then you start to, to do things for the natural world. So it's in, about, with and for the natural world. And then there's courses on there about working with two-year-olds and thinking about how, what drives them. There's um, aspects of using the natural world to help us nurture ourselves as adults. Um, there's things in there about documentation and planning. So a whole variety of different things. There's um, one of the projects that we've been doing through the charity. So if you buy any of my books, what happens is that the profit from that supports our kick, our community interest company called Living Classrooms. And Living Classrooms then works with marginalized communities. So we've worked with asylum seekers, um, refugees, ex-prison offenders, a, a whole variety of different groups of people who need a bit of help. So we develop the sense of community um, through being outside. That's its main driver. So what happens is that, you know, when um, you've got that funding, it just trickles through from the Mind Stretchers Academy into the charity that we have. And recently what's happened is that because of the pandemic, we founded something called the Virtual Nature School, which started a year ago now in response to people doing home education. We set up a YouTube channel. It's called the Virtual Nature School. So just search for that and you'll find all sorts of provocations. So they're film based provocations, all nature based, where you can engage in them just as a family at home. Some people use them to inspire them in their work. Um, they they all sort of last about a week. Um, and so we spend a week exploring bones and big teeth or um, ice or whatever it might be. And so that project now is running for another six weeks uh, with the Scottish government, where we're now looking at, um, I suppose, the, the awakening and the skill of looking. So we're looking at the skill of looking. We're looking up, looking down. We're looking through, in. Um, things like that. So those videos will be coming up and available for people. And you can sign up through the Virtual Nature School to the idea of the newsletter. There's um, practitioner provocations that we've been writing, little e-newsletters. There's the work that you've mentioned already, which is the inquiries, which is you sign up to the newsletter on the Mind Stretchers Academy. And that's about what we're learning with the natural world. Um, so yes, in, in summary, I suppose the, the Mind Stretchers Academy has the books, it has some resources, it has online training modules and webinars. And then the, the um, charity, the Living Classrooms, is the one that does a lot more of the project work. And so there's lots of free downloads and videos and things to help people on that site. That sounds, that sounds great. And you have all the experience yourself from the hands-on of having your own outside nature nurseries. <laughs> <laughs> and the, kid, the kids spend 90% of their time outside. Yes, I mean, it, it's act classified as a model called the nature kindergarten. And um, there are lots of different models around the world, whether it's forest school or nature kindergartens or outdoor nurseries or just going for a walk in the park. We've all got different ways of connecting to nature and none are better than others, um, but they are all connected by this meshwork underneath the ground um, called nature pedagogy. So for us here in this location, Nature Kindergarten um, 
is the what we wanted to do. And it's been open about 12 years now. So we've been lobbying and advocating quite hard globally, but also very much within the UK about the idea of having an outdoor nursery um, program, if you like. And so the children come in, they spend about, well, in some in the summer, it'll be 100% of their time outside. We do have a shelter. Um, we do have a small cottage that we work out of because I think there's something wonderful when you go out and you, you know, you'll know yourself, you go out and it's pouring with rain or it's really cold and windy and you go out and there's a development of real strength within you. And when you come back inside and you take off your waterproofs and you take off your hat and gloves and that's a wonderful moment of connection where you can then talk to the people you've been outside with about the adventure you've been on. And did you see me? I got really, it got rained on and I jumped in that massive puddle. So these are the stories of adventure. And I think they're very much part of our culture of being inside and outside with the natural world. Um, and the curriculum that we follow there um, is obviously we're accountable to the national curriculum here in Scotland. But it is all about um, inquiry-based learning and nature-based inquiry specifically. Um, so yes, there's a website um, and a Facebook group. You can follow us um, and we share lots of our experiences through both of those mediums on there. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to contact you? If you want to get in touch with me, by all means, go to my website. It's um, www.claire. Uh, dash warden.com um, and yeah email me my contact details are all on there and some of the projects I'm involved with and by all means get in touch it'd be great to connect thank you so much for coming on in the show notes we'll put all the links to the books of the courses and to your websites and we're, we're very very lucky to have you on the show so thank you very very much it's been a delight yeah anytime Thank you for listening to episode five of our Nature Educators series within the Nature Magic podcast. We're very happy to document the important work these special people are doing around the world. And hopefully these archives will be a resource for people to gain inspiration from educators who have years of experience behind them in this realm. Please subscribe and rate the podcast to help us spread the reach. See you in two weeks for our next episode with Janie Kodish, author of the amazing story, The Elephant Doctor of India. <laughs>